Well, if you've been joining us so far in the last three weeks, we've been starting this new series called Living in the Goodness of God. And we're really focusing out of this passage in Psalm 23 that kind of sets the stage about what God's goodness really is and and how it applies to our life, how it affects our lives. And maybe up to this point, you've become familiar with this passage, or maybe you've even started to memorize this passage as we've been kind of repeating it every single week. But if this is your first time, or if you have been falling asleep every sermon up until this point, we're going to kind of go through the first three verses together this morning, because it kind of just sets the stage for not just what we're going to talk about today, but for really what the goodness of God entails in our life and how it applies to us. So if you'd follow with me either in your Bibles or your tablets or on the very top of your notes or on the screen behind me, you have no excuse not to know where we are right now, right? So let's just go ahead and follow along. It says Psalms 23 verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now I'm going to pause here real quick before I continue. That phrase, I shall not want, is one of my favorite phrases in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it translates to, I lack nothing. It means because your father is the good shepherd, he is a provider, he's a support, he's a source of strength, a source of encouragement, a source of nourishment. There is nothing that you could want in life that he hasn't already provided for you. It says, I lack nothing. There's nothing in my life that I can't go to God and ask for that he isn't willing or already has given to me. So it says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a declaration. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And then it continues on. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. See folks, what we just read is what the good shepherd wants to do in your life. First thing he wants to do is he wants to give you rest. It says that he makes me lie down in green pastures. And this is what Pastor Larry talked about last week. That amongst the busyness, the chaos, the craziness of life, he wants to give you a rest that only he can provide. A rest that we so desperately need inside of our lives to succeed and to flourish. But not only that does he want to give us rest, he also wants to refresh us. He wants to bring a refreshment into our lives. It says that he leads me beside quiet waters. So I think that's why we're drawn to water. That's why we like to go to the river, to lakes, to the beach, just to go to a park and sit by the streams because there's something tranquil. There's something so peaceful about water that refreshes our souls. You know, speaking firsthand from this, we just came back from our summer camp with the high school students to Zion National Park in Utah. And our average temperature in the day was 102 to 109 every single day. And we found whatever opportunity we could to be in the water. Because once we got in the water, there was a sense of relief. There was a sense of refreshment. I mean, just look at the happiness on their faces, right? I mean, if we weren't in the water, they wouldn't have faces. They would have melted off by this point because it was so stinking hot out there. But just when we were in the water, like all the complaining stopped, all of the griping stopped. It just got to this like, ah, there's a peace. There's a refreshing. And as leaders, there was a, a rejuvenation that existed for us and letting us know that everything's going to be okay. And as I was walking through the water, this is the Narrows, one of the most famous hikes in Zion National Park. As I was walking through, I was just thinking how grateful I am for even the most littlest of things that God provides. It says, I shall not want because there is nothing. I lack nothing because even water the Father provides. In the midst of heat, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the turmoil that exists, the heat that exists, the the panic that exists around you, even the simplest things the Lord places in front of you. 
And he does it so freely and he wants to give you that refreshment. He wants to give you that rest. But then he continues on in that passage and he says, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. But what does that mean? Well, I think in order to understand what this means, we need to figure out what this word soul really entails. You see, your soul is, it's your mind. It's your will. It's your emotion. It's how you choose to do things. It's the decisions you make, the way in which you act out things. And these three things, your mind, your emotion, and your will, they determine who you are and who you become in life because it affects everything that you do. But it is so easy for these things to get damaged. It's so easy for us to find ourselves damaging our souls. You see, your mind can get damaged by the things that you put inside of it, by the traumatic experiences that you witness or you have done to you, or by the chaos of the world that exists around you. Our minds are damaged all the time. Our emotions can become damaged because they can become depleted. They can become raw. We can run out of emotion. We don't have any emotion in the situation, or for some of us, we're too emotional in a situation. And it pushes people away from us. And it leaves us feeling lonely and empty inside. Then your emotions can be damaged. And your will can be damaged because if you're all like me, there's times when you know that you have to get something done, but you find yourself sitting there saying, I really don't want to do this right now, right? I just don't have the desire. I don't have the willpower, the energy to go and do this. And that lack of desire, that lack of passion, it prohibits you sometimes from what God wants to do in your life from seeking after the things that he has created for you. And so it's so easy for us to damage our souls, to damage our mind, our emotions, and our will. We find it everywhere because we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world, and that's the sad reality of it all, that we find ourselves constantly surrounded by things that are trying to destroy us. And they push us further and further away from God. And the further away from God, we find ourselves engaging in these addictions and these things that we know that we shouldn't be doing that just continue to push us down. And this is why the Apostle Paul, he writes and he says that we find ourselves doing the things that we don't want to do and not doing the things that we know we should be doing in the first place. We're trapped. We're stuck in this cycle where we don't know how to get out. So when it comes to your soul, we're talking about your mind, your will, and your emotions. That's what the Lord, the good shepherd, wants to restore in your life. He knows you're struggling. He knows you're hurting. He knows the pain that you have. He knows the frustration, the confusion that you're feeling in your life. And he wants to take that and fix it. He wants to heal it. He wants to restore it back to his original creation. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about a couple of things that really damage our souls so we can be aware of them and then find hope in how Jesus restores even the worst of these things. So if you look at your note outline, we're going to jump straight in this morning. And there's a ton of things that can damage our souls, more than I have the time to kind of go into this morning. But I want to just talk about three of them, three of them that I think every single one of you are experiencing right now at the same time. Because I know I am, and I'm sure that you are as well. And these three things, they really are destroying us from the inside out. So here's the first one in your notes outline. First one is this. The first thing that destroys and damages your soul is unaddressed grudges. Unaddressed grudges. See, when you get resentful, when you get bitter, when you start to have feelings of revenge or retaliation against someone who's wronged you, you start to damage your soul. The sad reality, the sad fact is that you will be hurt in this life you will experience pain and hurt in your life because 
This isn't heaven. This is earth. We live in a broken place, and in a broken place, we are broken people. And as broken people, we're bound to hurt others, even intentionally or unintentionally sometimes. But the fact of the matter is that you will experience pain and hurt in your life. And that pain and hurt, it leads you to harboring grudges against people. Oh, I don't like this person. I wish this person would die. I wish pain would come to this person who hurt me. I want to inflict the same amount of pain that I'm feeling right now on these other people. And we harbor this this resentment, this revenge mentality in our lives. You know, life isn't fair. God never said that it would be. In fact, scripture even tells us that sometimes the innocent suffer. And we see this in life. We see that the good guys, they don't always win. We know that evil sometimes is successful, that bad people can be more successful than the good people are. And you've even experienced this maybe in your life. Maybe you've been, had injustice done to you. Maybe racism or prejudice or biasness or someone's mistreated you or misjudged you unfairly. We all know what that is like because we're in a broken world and everything around us is broken and we shouldn't be surprised by it. And what we're supposed to watch out for is not the fact that we're going to be hurt because the sad reality is we can't avoid it, but it's how we respond to the hurt in our lives. You can respond in a way in which it will either leave you bitter or it will leave you better. And that's what the father wants to do. That's what the good shepherd wants to do. He wants to take those bitter moments that you feel, that hurt, that pain, that grudge, and he wants to turn it into better moments for your life. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to give you that nourishment and how to go forward. So what do you do with those grudges? What do you do with that hurt? Do you go towards revenge, towards resentment? No. I think one of the best examples that we can learn from in scripture comes from a guy who knows what it's like to be in pain. A guy who knows what it's like to have hurt. A guy who has a right to hold grudges against the world. And his name is Job. Look at what Job says in chapter five, verse two. He says, to worry to death with resentment would be a foolish, senseless thing to do. Worrying yourself with resentment, harboring this grudge, it is a foolish, senseless thing to do. Why? Well, in chapter 18, he tells us because you're only hurting yourself with your anger. Did you catch that? You're only hurting yourself with that anger, with those grudges you're harboring inside. It's not hurting them. When people come and they hurt you, They don't even give you a second thought. They're off living their life, completely oblivious to the devastation that you're left in. And we sit there and we hold on to these grudges thinking that somehow by my anger, my frustration, it's gonna cause them pain. But it doesn't work that way. It's like trying to drink poison yourself, hoping that it will kill them. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. See, folks, here's the good news for us this morning, though. We serve a righteous. We serve a just We serve a forgiving God, a God who says that one day there will be a reckoning. One day there will be an equaling out where he will stand for the opposed, for the mistreated, for the abused, for the misjudged, those who have been prejudiced, who have had racism thrown at them. There will be a day of equaling out, but that's not our place. That's not our role to do. So what do we do in the meantime? How do we process these things until God stands up for us because he is loving Well, in the words of Frozen, you got to let it go, right? I just had to throw it in there. You got to let it go, right? And I know you may be saying, well, Matt, that's so difficult because I hate Frozen and I hate this analogy, right? But it's it's true. It's you got to learn to let it go because the more that you hold on to it, the more that you harbor it in your life, the more damage it's going to do. 
the more destruction it's going to leave you in your life. And you don't want to be stuck with this. And it's not because they deserve to have this forgiveness towards them. It's because you deserve it. It's because you deserve better in your life. You deserve to be set free from that hurt, from that pain, to find that restoration, to find that peace that only Jesus Christ, your good shepherd, can bring into your life. But you'll never experience that restoration until you learn to let go of those grudges, until you address them and say, Father, I'm giving them to you. I know that you will deal with them in your time, and I'm not going to let them tear me down any longer. That's the first thing that damages our soul. The second thing that damages our soul is this. It's unconfessed guilt. Second thing that damages our soul is unconfessed guilt. You know, two of the biggest things that destroy our lives are grudges and guilt. Grudges are the things that people do against you, and guilt more often than not is things that you do against other people because we too are prone to hurting people either intentionally or unintentionally. And God doesn't like guilt. In fact, he didn't create our bodies to handle guilt very well. Our maximums maybe like five seconds. It's just long enough to know that something is off, that we have done something wrong to recognize it and then to admit the fact that we have this feeling inside that's just off. This feeling that we don't know what to do with and surrender it over to God to give it to him and lay it at his feet. You know, in Psalms 38, David, he talks about guilt. And he says this, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. I'm bowed down, I'm brought low, and all day long I go about mourning. See, every single one of us has a good reason to feel guilt in our lives because we are imperfect people. We are self-centered people. And you can't have two self-centered people coming together to work on the same task and go in the same direction. It's never gonna happen. You're going to fight. You're going to butt heads. You're going to have disagreements. You're going to say things about the other person that you don't really mean. And our society has done a terrible job enforcing this to us because our society says that you have to do whatever it takes in order to succeed. You've got to be on top. Does it matter how many people you walk over, you trample on top of, how many people you wrong, you speak bad against, how many people you use to get your place? It's about you. It's about how far you can get in this life and be successful in order to survive. See, we all do things that leave us feeling guilty and we desperately need forgiveness. And the reason why we feel guilty, well, I think Proverbs 20, 27, it tells us, it says this, it says, the Lord gave us a mind and a conscience and we can't hide from ourselves. See, you can hide all kinds of stuff from me. You can hide stuff from Pastor Carlos, from Pastor Larry, from your husbands, your wives, your kids, your boss, your neighbors, your coworkers, your families, but you can't hide from God and you can't hide from yourself because the more that you tried to hide it, the more you tried to bury it, the more it starts to eat away at you from the inside, the more it starts to destroy you from the inside out. So you have to learn to release it, to give it over to God and to seek him in those moments, to seek that forgiveness so what do you do with this grief? Or what do you do with this, this guilt that you feel inside of your life? Well, same thing as with your grudges. You gotta learn to let it go. You gotta learn to ask for forgiveness and say, Father, I know that I have done wrong. I know that I have harmed other people. I know that maybe I've harmed myself. And Father, I ask for your forgiveness. But even more to take it a step further, you need to forgive yourself. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us to do. This is something that I personally struggle with but I hold myself to such a high standard. I struggle with forgiving myself in times when I feel guilty for things. 
And it's a pain. It's frustrating. And I think all of us can relate to that at some point or other because we don't like to feel guilty. We will do anything it takes to avoid this feeling of guilt. This isn't in your notes outline, but I want to show you five different ways in which we try to avoid guilt. Okay, it's not in your outline, but I think it's important for us to recognize. We will go so far in avoiding guilt. The first thing we try to do is to deny it. We try to deny it, to pretend like it never happened, right? We try to bury it in our past and just keep walking forward like it doesn't really matter. But the problem with burying it in your past is that it finds a way to resurrect itself at the most inopportune time. At a time when you think you're being successful, a time when you think that you're persevering, it's going to find a way to come back into your life. You can't deny that guilt. And if you can't deny it, once it's resurrected and you're looking at it again, the next thing you try to do is you try to minimize it. You say, well, it's no big thing, right? It ain't no thing. It's a small little tiny thing that doesn't really impact my life. But if that were true, why do you lay awake at night feeling that remorse, feeling that grief? Why do you think it keeps coming back into your mind? Why do you think it holds such a strong power over you? So you can't deny it. You can't minimize it. And if you can't do those two, the next logical thing to do is to rationalize it. And you know what to rationalize is? It's to tell yourself rational lies. It literally means I'm going to convince in my head that it's right what my heart knows is wrong. He said again, it's to convince in your mind what's right, even though your heart knows that it's wrong. And we live in a society today that rationalizes everything. If I protest long enough, it must be okay. If I voice my opinion loud enough, it must be okay. If I pick it, if I riot hard enough, it must be okay. If I do this with such vigor, with such passion, it must be okay. Even though somewhere in your heart, you know what you're doing is wrong. One of the best illustrations that I have, and I couldn't even write this if I tried, and I'm not trying to get political here, but when Donald Trump was elected as president, there was this rioting and this picketing that happened in LA that shut down the freeway. Most of you probably watched this on TV. The 101 was shut down and it was late at night and I was watching the news broadcast and one of the reporters was on the freeway interviewing people, just seeing what was going on. And I kid you not, the interviewer walks up to this guy and he says, why are you here? And the guy's response was, I live nearby and I saw people marching in the streets and shouting and then standing on the freeway. So I thought it would be cool to join them. Literally his motivation was just to go and protest because it was cool. And he asked him, he's like, well, you're chanting, you're yelling these things. Why are you doing this? And he says, I just want to fit in with everybody else. So I don't stand out. That's his rationalization. He knows it's wrong to stand in the middle of the freeway at night. He knows it's wrong to do these things, but he wants to fit in. And so he will do whatever it takes. And I think the same thing applies to our guilt, that we try to rationalize it. Well, even though I know it's wrong, I'm going to make it right in my life. I'm going to convince myself that it's okay because I want to fit in. I want to belong. I don't want to feel the guilt that I really am feeling. And if you can't rationalize it, the next thing you try to do is you try to compromise it. And we compromise it because we have this level, this standard that we set up here for ourselves. And we either we, we meet it or we exceed it or we're way below it, but we find guilt on either side of this level. And instead of recognizing and acknowledging this guilt, the thing that we do is we take this line and we move it down here. And we say, well, I don't really want to be up here anymore because that's a personal level I set. So I'm going to compromise my morals. I'm going to compromise my values. And I'm going to drop that standard down so that way I don't feel as guilty anymore. And we compromise all the time. And it's difficult. You see this in marriages. You see this in relationships and families. We're always compromising. 
And if you can't compromise, the last ditch effort you try to do is you try to blame it on someone else, right? You try to blame it. And we also see this everywhere because if the focus is off of me, I don't feel so bad. It's like there's a line drawn in the sand that on this side, there's guilt. And on this side, there's blame. And I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to take ownership. So I'm going to blame other people for the guilt I know that I deserve. We start playing the victim, even though we know that we're the enemy. See, guilt has a way to destroy us from the inside out. It has a way of damaging us, of leaving us depressed, leaving us with these feelings we don't know what to do with. But same thing, God says you need to give it over to him. You need to confess this guilt. Now, this word confess in the Greek is this word homologeo. And homo means same and logeo means word. And it literally means to confess is the same words of Jesus. It's saying, yes, Father, I admit I know what you are saying and speaking into my life. I know I can't deny my guilt. I can't minimize it. I can't rationalize it. I can't compromise it. I can't blame it on other people. I have to take ownership of this. Because the only way I'm going to feel restoration, the only way I'm going to feel freedom and forgiveness in my life is if I surrender that guilt to you and ask you for forgiveness and learn to forgive myself in the process. So that's the second thing that damages our soul. Here's the third thing. The third thing that damages our soul is unprocessed grief. It's unprocessed grief. See, there's no growth in life without change. And there's no change in life without loss because you have to trade the old for something new. And there's no loss without pain. There's no pain without experiencing grief in your life. And I think that grief isn't always necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing that was given to us to help us transition and to process through the tough times in our life. But when it does become bad is when you don't know what to do with it. When you don't know how to process it, how to take it in. Because when we feel this grief in our lives, more often than not, we shut down. We push people away. We say, I don't want to associate with anyone. I'm just going to go over here in the corner and isolate myself from the world, from friends, from family, from God. And I'm just going to do my own thing. Because I'm hurting. Because I feel grief and I'm just going to sit here rather than seek help. And it destroys our relationships. It destroys our connection with God because we're pushing him further and further and further away. You see, if grudges don't get you, your guilt will. And if guilt doesn't get you, your grief will. All of these things, they destroy us from the inside out. And most of us are sitting here today with one of these things. Maybe you feel guilty for something you've done. Maybe you're holding a grudge against someone. Maybe you've got grief because your marriage is in trouble, relationships in trouble, or you lost a job or whatever it may be. We all have these feelings. But if we let them just sit there and we don't give them over to God to confess them, they will destroy us from the inside out. They will ruin our souls and affect how we eventually become, who we become in this life. And so the question to ask then is, what do I do with all of this? Not even what do I do, but what does God do? How can God fix these things? Let's say, hypothetically, I wanted to make things better. How can I fix the grudges that I hold in my life? Because I'm hanging on to that hurt. How do I fix that grief that I have because the loss is more than I can bear? How do I fix all of these things that I'm struggling with in my life? Well, the answer is you can't fix it. Jesus Christ has to be the one. Jesus Christ is the only one who can restore these things in your life. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. So I want to leave you with 
a response from the scripture that tells us how Jesus responds, how he heals, how he fixes, how he restores these things in our lives. So the first one, if you look at your outlines, is this. The first one is when we're hurt by others, Jesus restores my soul by turning my grief or by turning my hurts into holiness. Jesus restores my soul by turning my hurts into holiness. You see, God can bring good out of bad. God brings good out of evil. He brings triumph out of tragedy in our lives. And we see this even from the beginning of time in the book of Genesis chapter 20, verse 50. It says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, the stuff that happens to you, it's not always bad. God is going to use those things. Even when you think that there's nothing good that can come from this, he's going to use those things to change your life, to transform you, to give you a hope, to give you a purpose, to build you up, to restore your life, to do good through them. And we know this is truth. We know that this is a promise because we even read it in scripture. One of the most famous passages that most of us know in this room is Romans 8, 28. And Romans 8, 28 says this, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. See, God takes the bad things that people do to us and against us, and he turns them into good. God takes our sins and our mistakes, and he turns them into good. God takes our failures, our damaged minds, our damaged souls, our damaged will, and he turns them into good. God is in the habit of transforming our lives, of taking the negative and making it into something positive. And why does he do this? Well, I think we have to focus on that second part of this verse. It says that he does this to those who are called according to his purpose. So this is his purpose. What's his purpose? That you would build your character, that God can use any crises any tribulation, any chaos, any trials, whatever it may be in your life, that he can use them to make you more like Jesus Christ. And that's been his purpose all along. From the very beginning of creation, he knew that this world would be fallen. He knew that this world would be corrupted, but he can still bring triumph out of the tragedy. He can still form you into the image of Jesus Christ, which is his desire if you allow him to do so if you give him the freedom to work that way in your life. See, we all have broken relationships, broken families, broken marriages, broken jobs. But God says, if you give these to me, I will take your hurts. I will turn them into holiness. I'll take your pain and turn it into times of rejoicing. Who wouldn't want that? That's the first way. The second thing is this, that when it comes to looking at the, the grudges and the guilt that we feel, Jesus restores my soul by taking my sins upon himself. Jesus restores our souls by taking his sins on ourselves. This is so foundational, folks. He says, I'm going to take your guilt. I'm going to take your grief, your shame, your grudges. I'm going to take all of it and I'm going to nail it to the cross so you don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm going to take your pain, your suffering, your worry, your fears, your doubts, your concerns, and I'm going to remove them from your life. See, this is the greatest news we could ever possibly hear in life. This is so foundational. And if it weren't true, then we shouldn't even be here this morning because it means that Jesus would be nothing in our lives. But this is so foundational because this is the best news in the entire world. You know, 700 years before Jesus came to this earth, God spoke to a man named Isaiah, a prophet. And he told him that there would be this Messiah, 
the Savior who would come to the earth and change it. He would transform it. Check out this passage from Isaiah chapter 53. And this is 700 years before Jesus Christ actually came. It says, he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten and he took our punishment so we might have peace. And through his wounds, our wounds are healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and the sins of us all. See, folks, what I just read is the most basic fundamental truth of the entire scripture, of the entire Bible, that Jesus has freely come to take your pain, your punishment, your sins, to take them from you so you don't have to deal with them any longer. And he does so freely. All that he asks is that you recognize it, that you accept his grace, his mercy, the restoration that he wants to build into your life, that you recognize that and you reach out for it. Why stay hurting in pain? Why stay holding on to things you know are only going to damage your soul? Jesus has already set you free from them. Not just what you do today or tomorrow, but five years, 10 years, a hundred years from now. He's going to take all of that away from you. He's already paid and redeemed you from all of that. You know, continuing in this passage in verses 7 through 12, it says this. It says that he was beaten down and punished, but he didn't say a word. He was led out like a lamb to be slaughtered. He was condemned to death without fair judgment. Then he was put to death for the transgressions of everyone else. He died like a criminal, then was buried with the rich even though he had done nothing wrong and he had never lied, yet it was God's plan to cause him to suffer. Whose plan was it? It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jewish. It was God's plan. Jesus says, I voluntarily lay down my life for you and you and you for every single person. It's my plan. It's my purpose to set you free from any pain the world will throw at you. 700 years before Jesus actually came to this earth. That's so foundational when we think about it, so powerful when we truly start to look at it. And when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just take this temporary, momentary thing. He took it all. So you wouldn't have to be held captive by this. And scripture even says that he didn't just nail it to the cross, but then afterwards he cast it into the furthest, deepest parts of the ocean. And then in the Matt translation of the Bible, I like to add after that, the next verse says that Jesus comes and he puts a no fishing sign in the ocean. Because he says, why on earth would you cast out and try to drag all the things that I've already forgiven you for? All the things that I've already forgotten. Why would you intentionally want to go and bring all of that back into your life when you've already been liberated from it? There's no point. You know what that's called? That's called disbelief. It's believing that your God is not big enough to handle what you're facing in your life right now. But God says, you just need to believe. You need to understand that I have a restoring power I want to freely give to you this morning in your life, for the rest of your life, that you are no longer held captive by your grudges or by the grief that you feel in your life. The third and final thing I want to look at this morning is this. We talked about guilt. We talked about grudges. But what about our grief? Well, Jesus restores our soul by feeling our grief and healing our hearts. He feels our grief and he heals our hearts. How does he feel our grief? Why does he feel our grief? Because he understands. We read in scripture that Jesus left his place in heaven, a holy place without sin, without pain, without punishment, and he came down to the earth to be like us in flesh so he could experience what you and I have been through, 
that he could know every single thing that we ever possibly could go through. So he could understand and he could heal us from them. Once again, looking at this passage in Isaiah chapter 53, same story 700 years earlier, it says this, he was despised and rejected by others. He was a man of sorrows who endured much pain and suffering. He experienced deep grief, but we ignored him and we looked the other way. He was hated, we did not care. And yet it was our weakness that he was carrying on the cross and it was our sorrows that weighed him down. See, if you've ever been despised, you know what that feels like, but so does Jesus. And he wants to restore you from that. If you've ever been rejected or had somebody walk out of your life, you know what that feels like, but so does Jesus. And he wants to restore that feeling in your life. See, Jesus doesn't just understand because he's experienced it. Jesus heals because he knows how to. And he's the only one that knows how to bring that restoration into your life. And he wants to do so freely. The question is, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be restored? So what do you do with your grudges, with your grief, with your guilt? Are you holding on to something this morning? Are you letting something control you and determine who you are, even though Christ has already forgiven it for you? Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you're in a breakup. Maybe you feel like nobody wants anything to do with you in this life. Maybe you don't even know what to do with your life. When's the last time you just went to your heavenly father and said, God, I give you my all. Father, I confess that I've done wrong. People have done wrong against me. God, that I am suffering. God, I'm feeling pain, but I'm ready to be restored by you. I'm ready to feel that forgiveness and that grace and that mercy that only you can bring into my life. The question is, are you willing to let go of whatever it is you're holding on to to experience the restoring power and the goodness of God this morning? Would you pray with me as I close? Father, our soul, it does need restoring. Father, we don't always think right. We don't always choose right. We don't feel right. God, we need you to restore our damaged souls, our minds, our wills, our emotions. And Father, today we just, we ask for your help. Father, for the things that we have unaddressed grudges in our life that we would recognize they're not gonna do us any good to hold on to that hurt, that we're only hurting ourselves with that anger. But Father, we pray that you would turn our pain into gain, God, that you would set us free from that hurt. And God, with our unconfessed guilt, the stuff that we've been carrying around in our lives, God, they're causing us to sink under the weight of it all. But Father, we need your forgiveness. And more than that, Father, we believe that you have taken it from us. God, that we're not gonna listen to our, our feelings or anyone else says about us or what Satan may try to put in our mind. But Father, we know that you have taken it all to the cross so that we may be set free. And we pray that you just release that guilt from our lives. And Father, with the losses in life that have caused us grief, we pray that you help us through that. God, we know that you feel our grief, that you hear our cries, but Father, that you heal our hearts as you've promised. God, we're gonna trust you. God, we're gonna humbly confess that we need you, that we can't do this without you. And God, we pray that you can just be there every step of the way, that we would recognize that and that we would feel your presence and your power as it transforms our lives to restore us into the image of Christ that you created us to be. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen.